Welcome to Shock Your Potential, business podcast meets radio talk show. My guests are everyday people trying to make a difference in leadership, sales, and customer service. I apply the tell me more principles from my book to help each person facilitate a solution that works for them. Join us today as we meet another great person trying to make a difference in this world. Good morning, and thank you for joining me again on another episode of Shock Your Potential, the business podcast where I focus on excellence in leadership, sales, and customer experiences. And joining me today is a great friend of mine, and this is going to be an opportunity not only for me to highlight uh, some of the amazing things that he is working on every day, but also to learn a little bit more about his core business, which with all of our time spent together, especially over the holidays where we... uh, enjoyed with a, a couple other couples, uh, a lovely trip through the British Virgin Islands. Um, I want to, uh, to get to know him a little bit better and share his story with you all. So welcome today to my friend, Jason Brenner, and he is with an organization called LIS Enterprises, which might not give you a lot of information about what he does, but that's what he's here to do today. So welcome. Thank you for joining me, Jason. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk with you. This is going to be fun. What I'd like to do is just start off, you know, would you give our audience a little bit of an overview of who you are and what you do with your company? So I'm Jason Brenner, um, my company, LIS Enterprises. We import from China. Um, For the most part, we do component parts, which are parts that are then assembled with other parts to produce a product. So um, while we do some finished goods, you know, package turnkey type of things, a lot of what we do is producing small parts in China. They get shipped over here to the U.S. or um, sometimes other places. But a lot of what we do is is in, in North America and the U.S. And we uh, deliver our parts to our customers. They then assemble a product here in the U.S. And, and it is, generally speaking, a made in America type of situation. But of course, we are providing parts from China, which is, of course, a lower cost alternative um, and gives companies a better opportunity to be competitive in the marketplace by procuring parts at lower prices. Wonderful. So can you give me an example of a part that you might uh, put all the components together for a company for? So I currently do a lot of um, of blind parts, um, like uh, window shades and window coverings, which are automatic and uh, they are they go up and down based on using your your iPhone. They are they are battery powered and um, you can use your phone. You can use a little remote control. You can also, you know, pull on them and they'll go up on their own as well. But um, these are good for commercial buildings and things where you can't reach the uh, the blinds and you would have to just <laughs> do them automatically. And uh, so we do a lot of different components for them. Um, we do um, some tubes for that the batteries go in. We do a lot of different plastic parts and caps, little clips and gears and, and things of that nature. We do some, some drive shaft things that are zinc castings. We do some stamped metal parts. It is a variety of different parts that go into these. And then we assemble do a lot of sub-assemblies, some bearing assemblies and things of that nature. We then ship them over to our customer here and they then will place the uh, the fabric on on the tubes and they will, you know, assemble everything together and every customer has different sizes that they need in a different quantity so they produce exactly what is needed for their customers. Some are smaller 
you know, or residential type of things, uh, you know, six, 10, 20 windows. Other things are 2000 condominium lines, all, all standard. So it kind of runs the gamut there, but that is, that's one example of doing a bunch of things for one customer and pulling it all together and, and helping them achieve their goals. You know, I guess I never really thought about it, about all the the small pieces of things that have to go into, you know, various things like window shades. And yet, if you are a small business and you're trying to create something, especially if it's customized, it would be very difficult to produce and procure all those parts and pieces on your own without great cost. That is true. And then uh, additionally is, you know, when you're trying to produce in the U.S., if you're trying to do all of these components in the U.S., it is very, very challenging. And um, as, you know, many people talk about reshoring, about moving products back to the U.S. and instead of producing overseas in low-cost countries, that we should produce them here, which is great, um, except for the fact that we don't actually have a lot of these components. You know, when it comes to castings, um, we don't pour as much metal as we used to. A lot of the tool and die makers that were around here for for years and years they no longer have those skills those those molds are made in china those parts are made in china and to bring them back is very difficult when you're talking about a tiny little part that it's that it's a nickel and how do you compete against that nickel well the answer is it's really really difficult and and in most cases you say hey i will buy that component in a low cost country and then i'll assemble it here so i'll use some some us labor and some some more sophisticated labor to to put these things together yeah i you know i was just um or this fall at some point in time i watched the movie joy i don't know if you've seen it um and it's the true story of the woman who uh invented the Oh gosh, whatever super mop. I can't remember the name of it. That's horrible that I'm saying that. But she then ended up getting it on uh, the uh, Home Shopping Network or QVC, one of those. And the whole the whole concept behind how she had to have particular parts made and the the uh, dies cast to make these plastic components to hold the mop together. And I had never really thought about, you know, okay, if you're on your own and now you have a big contract and you need to produce 8,000 mops in the next six weeks and be able to sell this product at, I think they were selling it for $19.99 or something. If your products come to $10 of that, you know, by the time you get done with everything, you've not made any money. So it's, uh, I can see how there's a balance between how do you do it? How do you, how do you scale up? How do you also deal with a smaller um, uh, manufacturing need and do it while being cost conscious? And of course, one of the things that you mentioned there was trying to get this done in six weeks. And, you know, for, for this application, for this person, it's very complex to do that. Um, in most cases, when you're talking about a plastic part or a, a a poured metal part, a cast part, or even a stamped part, and a lot of these different things, you need to make a mold to produce that, a, a tooling that you would pour the metal in or pour the plastic into that has the shape of the object that you're trying to make. Those molds, generally speaking, even overseas, take a month to make. And in the US, when you try to order things like that, the lead times generally are four months, five months. You know, the, there just isn't the throughput in this country anymore to crank out so many molds. So then people do, of course, procure molds from overseas to ship them here to then produce with them in the US. But of course, yeah, one of the challenges is that if you want to make something cost competitively, you need to make a mold to be able to make it in a high volume. You can't just machine it or, you know, make it by hand for for 50,000 pieces and be able to, to be competitive. 
Well, and I'm really glad you said that too, because, you know, thinking about the dialogue that we have in, in the U.S. about made in America, and of course, I'm a believer in that, and I know you are as well, and and it's it's a great thing to say, but in reality, whether or not you have a product that is, you know, that you're trying to be exceptionally cost competitive for, or you're just trying to keep your business afloat, it's not always feasible. And I think it's important that we look at, you know, things on an individual basis and not just a global uh, paintbrush where we say it has to be made in America or else we're not going to support it. And that's, that is very true. And I think I, I tend to see that. I think there's this uh, pipe dream, especially for guys who, who might be making something new and they say, I want to make this in America. I want to make it all here and I want to sell it from here. And I, and then they start to realize that, well, wait a second, it's got to sell for $10 and Walmart is going to buy it from me for $5. And which means that I got to make it next to nothing for this to work. And at that point, you know, it's not necessarily cost effective to make every component here. So you start to say, okay, well, I do need to, to use the world at large and, and I can't just work in this vacuum, which is the U.S., Right. And, you know, to your other point, then even building on that, when you get components of this and you're able to bring it back and do the rest of the production or, or the assembly within the U.S. using U.S. force, then you are still, you're still providing something that keeps our country strong as well, while also still staying cost competitive. And that that's a balance that, you know, sometimes it's, it's probably difficult for people to, to justify in their heads. It's true. Um, and when you mention that, there's um, it makes me think of the uh, Made in America Act, which is a uh, an act which is just that. Hey, we're trying to produce more things here. Let's produce it here. Um, what's ironic about that is the Made in America Act. You can have a lot of components that come from low cost countries to do this. So Made in America just has to be basically assembled in America in a lot of cases. Now, that doesn't mean that you can always just buy it all in, in China. Sometimes you have to source some of those components from, quote unquote, our friends, which might be Taiwan or, or, or you know, a different co a country that is not necessarily combative with us when it comes to, to trade policies. So, um, you know, we try to get other countries involved, even with this Made in America Act, because we realize that we can't just do it in a vacuum. Yep, I, I agree. Now, so tell me then a little bit about your customers. Do you have a, you know, a group of really loyal customers that use you over and over again? Or do you have a mix of a lot of new people that say, hey, I heard about you and I, you know, want to see what you can do for me? You know, what's what's your core business look like? It is more relationship driven. It is more long term. A lot of these things, think of it like insurance. It's it's residuals where someone orders something one time and they don't order it again. Well, you've done business with them once and maybe you'll have an opportunity to do it with something else. But in a lot of what I do, they buy ten thousand a year of a certain item and you know, that might be five thousand one year, it might be fifteen thousand another year. But a lot of times there's a good consistency to what is being sold. Now that is not across the board. A, a lot of these things they do come and go, or they might be sold uh, a ton and then the next year um they're not bought anymore for example i do snow shovel handles the bent back saver model that you know they were got very popular for a while i've done i do them in a couple different colors and uh you know black is black is very typical silver is not but silver was basically just for target not target bought a ton of different of, of these this style in silver well then eventually target said hey we're gonna buy from this other guy which i'm not selling direct i'm selling to a 
company in the U.S. that is making these snow shovel handles. They're or making these snow shovels. They're assembling the blade and the grip on the back. Um, so when they lose their contract, I then lose mine. Now I'll still do business with those guys for that black handle, but that until they get back in with with Target or they get in with Walmart or um, you know a Home Depot, that my sales may suffer because I am at the at the mercy of the guy who was selling that, which is my customer. It just goes to show you how many people and how many points are required to make any one product, much less a business, successful. Is that there's uh, somebody once referred to it as multiple points of failure, that there's so many chances within most anything where you have a chance to fail that uh, in order to be nimble enough, you have to adjust for that and plan for that and not take it personally, but, but know that uh, that's why we need to have variety in what we do and who we work with and have enough uh, always on the back burner ready to go. And with that said, that becomes one of the challenges of, of new business. You know, when you work with somebody existing, they tend to send you, oh, here, I'm coming up with this new product. Hey, we've been doing this for a while. Can you get us a better price on it? So there become these opportunities for, for other things down the road. However, no one ever got fired from buying from the same guy that they've always bought from. So it's hard to get in with people unless they have a big problem. You know, they're not going to say, oh, well, yeah, let me spend $5,000 on a new mold for this part that has never had a problem. The only thing that can happen there is they could save a few cents, which their boss would not care that much about. Or they could things could go wrong and they could get in some trouble and get fired because now the product's not out the door because they decided to save, you know, two percent on this little plastic part and now nothing is shipping. So, you know, I think um, once you prove it to somebody, it becomes much easier. But this that initial sale isn't as as easy as a uh, you know selling something off the shelf. Yeah, I agree, and and it's so important to to keep that uh, relationship, that customer experience, to be very solid. So, you know, how do you go about that? How do you make sure that you are committed to giving a shockingly great experience to that customer in order to keep them for life? Well, I think at the end of the day, it is it is just that it is the making sure that the customer experience is it's what they expect. And I deal with a lot of different people. Um, sometimes I'm dealing with the president CEO. Sometimes I'm dealing with purchasing people. Sometimes I'm dealing with engineers. It really runs the gamut and understanding that each person has their own concerns and needs and things that they find uh, most valuable um, is important. I'd say the biggest thing though is being there. Um, I'm not a doctor, but at the same time, when someone runs out of parts and they can't produce, it is like, our line is down. It, it's a big deal. We can't go on and I'm going to get fired. And, and they expected that time that you produce something and ship something much faster than you really should be able to do it. But at the end of the day, they don't care. It just needs to be done. And and a lot of times it's just about being there. And sometimes the answer isn't what they want to hear, but to be there and say quickly and say, listen, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm going to do everything I can, but this is the situation we're in. Right. Triage, you know, it, 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 triage is, and I think the doctor reference is great because it immediately made me think, and I work with a number of uh, physicians and hospital groups where we talk about leadership and they always think it's very interesting, you know, to have somebody talking to them as physicians about leadership, but it's about that ability to communicate and look at your team and be able to, you know, deliver sometimes 
difficult information, but you're triaging all the time to maintain control of the situation, whether it's trying to pull the you know, nurse in to do the blood work or it's telling the you know, family what to expect. The same thing in sales is that that honesty and that dialogue, especially when you're dealing with people's heightened emotions, uh, can make all the difference in whether or not they trust you and can accept bad news. That is That is the truth. And especially when it comes to production, things go wrong. And I say this whenever I start working with somebody, listen, we, there will be a point where something goes wrong. You Stuff shows up and you can't use it. And you know it's manufacturing. This is going to happen. That's when I'm going to prove it to you. I will be there. I will take care of it. I'd say that is probably the biggest value proposition that we offer. Even though we are producing overseas and, and it is far away and there's many different factories, at the end of the day, if the parts are not right, and you are not happy with them, we will take full responsibility. We will replace, we will we will ship by air, we will give a credit for something that is bad. We don't just say, hey, call this factory in China, they'll take care of it for you, or maybe they'll take care of it for you. I feel like every customer has a, you know, that has dealt overseas has a story of, we got this container and we, we bought from them 20 times and then it came in and all of a sudden it was wrong and they just didn't answer our calls anymore. And especially when it comes to over in China, the way that they perceive long-term value is totally different than the way that we do in the US. So a lot of these are are short-sighted and I'd say that's one of, been one of my challenges of working with these factories, especially the smaller guys who are trying to work their way up is to let them understand that, listen, you can if you do it wrong this time, there will never be another opportunity. You do it right in the beginning, and eventually down the road, you make a mistake. You can put, but th- when you screw up in the beginning, it's over. And there's so many, and I've said it, you know, if if they if my Chinese factories never made a mis- mistake, I'd be retired already. But the fact of the matter is that things go wrong, and you have to make sure that you get behind these things. Get actually get get on top of these things. Make sure they go right. Then get behind the customer. Get them what they need, and then the hope is that they don't hate you for it, even though you've done everything right. You know, and it, like, sometimes people will just hate you because it didn't go right, and there's nothing more you can do. But don't you think, and you said this, you said this just a moment ago, and I, I think it's really important to emphasize is that that setting the right expectations up front with that customer and say, you know, look, it is we're dealing with manufacturing. There's going to be problems. And hopefully not too many and hopefully not very often, but you know, be prepared for that. And even if they know that because they've dealt with it before, I think there's nothing better than just to to say it again and remind people because it, it it puts it in their mind. And that way you know later that you say, Now remember, I told you this could be a, a potential, but I also told you I'm gonna be there with you every step of the way. So take a deep breath, relax, we're gonna get through this. And you are right, but at the end of the day, they don't care. <laughs> you know, it's ha- it's happened, it's blown up, it is on fire, and what are you going to do about it? And they don't care what you've said or what what the the reality of the situation is. It it is. I need it fixed. My ass is on the line. I get help, help, and that's all I can do is help. And, you know, ultimately, I, I'd say these things do get resolved. Now, is it going to be in the air to you tomorrow? No, it's not. It has to be produced. But oftentimes it's being produced in two, three days, whereas normally it's 30, you know. So, you know, I certainly push hard. I make sure that my customers get what they need. But there is a uh, an aspect of there's only so much that can be done sometimes. Um, and you have some customers who will work through that. And, and only so fast. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right. 
Yeah, it was funny. Just this is a, a kind of a side note related, but I just called my uh, publisher to to uh, order some more books that I can have on hand, and um, they said, "Okay, so you know, how fast do you need these?" I said, "Well, I need them by the middle of February." They go. You don't need them tomorrow. I said, no, I need them by the middle of February. I still have some and I, and I don't like to rush things. And the guy starts laughing. He goes, wow. <laughs> I don't even no know what to say about like, that. Yeah, I'm, used to, I'm used to people saying I, I ran out. Like, can you get them here by the end of the day? Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So with all this, tell me, you know, when you think about you know, what you do and, and the focus that you have on that relationship with the customer to give them a great experience, you know, can you think of a particularly wonderful or shocking customer service experience that you've been the recipient of that influences how you work with the people you do? How it influence? Well, I, I I suppose so. Um, so many years back, I'm gonna guess we're going probably about 15 years ago or so now. I um, I used to back in the day. I was a smoker. I was I smoked Marlboro Reds, and I had I had entered some type of yes, yes, I did, and I and which I had quit. I don't know. It's been 10 years or so. But at the time, I smoked, and I entered some some sweepstakes some promotion um that i didn't even remember entering and i find out i've won a trip to the marlboro ranch what seems like a seems like a scam to me but let's look into this you know i call what's going on you know you entered this thing and yeah so you you're going to come out to montana for for four days as our guest you know you bring bring somebody with it with you it's all, all everything's paid for we even give you a check for the taxes for it it's all taken care of and um, they have, you know, they send you a FedEx package and the, you know, it's nice and smooth and a nice, clean, just the way that they handle everything up front is good. You know, plane tickets come in the mail, you go and you, you show up at the airport. You don't even pick up your bags. They pick up your bags from the carousel for you. They put it on the bus. They make sure you've got your stuff. And then you drive from the Bozeman airport to um, the middle of nowhere in Montana to their ranch that uh, they own, where they took all these small buildings um, from little little uh, ghost town type of things, and they built this little main street, and they have little uh, I don't know if it was hotels, but it was kind of different rooms that it might have four or five rooms in it, and some different buildings, and and then on your way in, there's a guy instead of just driving up, there's a guy on horseback, and he's running next to him with his hat, and he's the Marlboro Man, yeah, and like that was the beginning, and it's just the entire thing. You get to your room. Everything that you need is there. Um, so this was in the winter. Um, so there was uh, snowboarding and snowmobiling and horseback riding and, and skiing and sledding and tobogganing. And you just sign up for the activities that you want and they schedule everything. And it's like, oh, this afternoon, we're going to drive you over to Big Sky and you're going to go skiing. And here's your instructor. Uh, you know, Oh, you don't want an instructor. Here's a guide for the mountain and first class. And I've been I've been lucky to be on some great trips, but this is one where it was all paid. And it's like, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing this? And the answer is, well, we can no longer advertise on TV anymore. We can't have all these billboards. So we're trying to build relationships with customers. And this is one of the things that we're doing to try to have this, this relationship with our customers. And it was kind of like, wow, what a different take on how you try to keep your customers happy and to, to market to them and to build brand awareness where, you know, I think we all 
have our perception of what the brand of Marlboro looks like. And, you know, with the recent news that Philip Morris is looking to sell and get out of that business just shows that no one wants to be a part of it. But at the same time, you try to make yourself look as good as possible. And uh, I think everybody that I ever spoke to there, they loved every second of it. And no one would walk out of there saying anything bad about Marlboro, even if even if like my mother who has who has lung cancer, you know, it's like, you just, it's, it's building a, 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 you know, a friendly brand awareness, whereas you're kind of used to a different experience with that company. Yeah. I think that's, that's great. Now I want to go find that place just to, <laughs> just to see it. I love the area there too. I love Montana, but I think, you know, especially when you are in a business as, as that one was at that time and still is where challenged by things hitting you at every angle. And, and uh, my whole family, uh, they'll probably be mad at me if they hear this, but they have all been smokers, uh, at, at some point in time, many of them still are. I never was, but um, just the commitment to to saying, you know, regardless of of who you are, we want to give you this great experience and wrap our arms around you. So, you know, it doesn't really matter that what the pro- product is if you look at the experience that they're trying to generate. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was just it was a really good uh, good experience. And they, you know, when it about sh- you know, did it shock me? Absolutely, I did not expect any of that. And uh, I mean, I feel like I've had, I, you know, I had to think of other things. Like I've had some great personal experiences where an employee or a couple employees at a company just go above and beyond. But I felt like this is one where a whole company was able to really motivate their people to to do that, to just provide a stellar experience across the board. And if you wanted it, they made sure that it happened so that you walked away from there having a great experience. Yeah, I think that's a great example. I love it. So now when you look back on your career and your life and you, you know, as we all look back and think, gosh, there's things I've learned, there's things I would do different. But I always ask everybody if you could go back and talk to your earlier self earlier in your career, you know, is there a piece of advice that you would give to that younger self that that now that you know what you know, that it would shock your potential to even farther and faster than what you've done? Because I know you you have a very successful company, but knowing what you know now, are there things that you would do differently to make it even stronger? Well, and and I'd say I've, I've been very, very lucky that way, you know, in terms of, you know, getting out of the gate fast and, and having early successes and keeping those rolling. It, it's been outstanding. I don't really have some some super, oh, if I had done this, it all would have been different, um, nor would I have wanted to. But when I look back early on in my career, the one thing that I didn't necessarily understand right away was how important reacting to change is. And I was in a startup internet company that we had, uh, when I got on board, there were eight of us. When we then brought in a new management team that was part of Ameritech, which is essentially Verizon, you know, a big conglomerate of uh, telecom companies. And we brought in, at at the height of this, we had uh, 175 people. We had raised, I helped raise 30 million in capital. And quickly, we just were no longer this small company. We had executives who were used to big company things. Just the way everything was done was different. I was doing marketing. I was doing everything. All of a sudden, we had 13 people in marketing nobody was doing anything it was just a it it just it it wasn't an ideal especially for a guy who's a go-getter and i was i was really happy in that early thing what i didn't do is accept that change early enough um and management made it a point to really 
kick everyone who said, oh, you know, I'm, uh, this is working. They brought in, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, Who Moved My Cheese? That was a big, big topic. And we read, and it's a really short book that I really don't like. But at the same time, um, it's, it's methods and it's, it's true. Like the cheese, if you are a mouse, the cheese sometimes gets moved and you can't just run to the same place that you always got it. You have to understand that we all accept change. It's, you know, a invariably at some point we accept the change that has been handed to us. I'd say the big thing is to accept that change instantly, to just let what you know go and move on, that would have helped me. But it's it's an easier thing to say than to do because when we're in that moment, we're, we're still bound by the things that we've always believed. And it's hard to say, man, I've been doing it wrong all this time or not all the way right. You know, so it's it's hard to to let those things go. But I know if I had, I might've been in a better spot. Well, and I always say, you know, I've I worked with the last two uh, positions that I had. We took these companies through massive, massive change. And I remember saying to people, I'm not telling you that what you did before was wrong. It doesn't mean it's bad, but the fact that we're doing it differently means that we're aligned to one vision and there's reasons behind it. Now, if you're not sure what those reasons are or the why, then ask me questions, you know, because otherwise I'm going to assume that you get it. And if you don't, that's okay too. Let's talk about it. But I think a lot of times with change to your point is that, you know, people feel offended or worried. Well, gosh, was I doing it wrong before? Not necessarily. It just sometimes is going to be different and sometimes it will be. That's interesting that you mentioned the why. And I think that's part of it though. And I am definitely a person who I need to understand why, or otherwise I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to understand it. And I think that's probably my point about accepting the change faster is to not even worry about why, to accept the change. And then you can ask the questions. But I feel like every time I've asked the questions, I've still been in my mode of, I I'm defensive. I feel like what I've done is right. Or how, why is this? Why do you want me to do that? Where meanwhile, I need to say, this is the way to do it. Okay. So what was your logic for that? Uh, I'm, I'm on board, but what's your logic? Right. And I think it's a great you know, question. In fact, in my book, I have one of my characters that does a lot of questioning. And he, his character is kind of the culmination of many, many people that have worked for me over the years. But a little bit of it is me as well in there, realizing the day that when I felt empowered enough to ask questions myself at different points in my career, um, in change situations, that when I felt confident enough to say, I'm sorry, can you just help me understand this? My uh, my ability to buy in was stronger, but my confidence in myself grew exponentially. But I had to have the confidence first to ask the question. Can you explain it to me? Right. Tell me why. Yeah, and and asking questions is always hard to do, especially when we're kind of backed into a corner. You know, we we just you know we feel like what we've done is wrong, and we just stick with it, and we don't. You know, it's it's that defensive nature, and I certainly I certainly have it. I'm very survivalist that way. You know, so. Um, you know, it is, it is what it is. And I think part of it is, is, you know, starting to understand yourself a little bit more as you grow and, and understanding where your faults are. And, and, you know, that certainly was one of them is to not accept something as, as soon as it comes. And you know what, you can't argue it. You can't argue it. Sometimes it's just going to be. And I think that's a great awareness. And I think it's important for all of us to, to recognize that because we we're hit by it every day in life. Like you said, you know, we're going to have change no matter whether it's personal or professional. So it's all in how you look at it. 
So in our last few minutes, I, I want to know a little bit more, or well, I know some, but I want you to be able to share a little bit more about a very unique hobby that you have that is also a, a business in your life. So uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, about this special, unique talent you have and, and what it is and why you started doing this? Well, thanks. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I um, I have been doing some woodworking for a few years, most most notably uh, wood turning. So I've been making a lot of bowls, vessels, sculptures, also some some furniture, a lot of live edge furniture, some kind of rough edge. Sometimes bark is still on some shelving, some mirrors, some house numbers, and just just different types of things that using live edge wood. But most notably, I really enjoy doing the uh, the wood turning and uh, and making bowls and. And I started doing this and it got to be one of those where I would show people and they would say, you made this? And it was that that I realized like, wait a second, maybe I have something here because no one thinks that I could possibly be doing this. <laughs> and then it came to the wife saying, okay, this is enough wood, get it out of the house. <laughs> And uh, so I went over to uh, a local store on South Street in Philadelphia that they sell a lot of hand handicraft type of things and also some nice procured gifts um, called Workshop Underground. So I went over to, to Ruben where I've done some shopping there before. I said, hey, I, this might be something that's up your alley. Like, what do you think? Is it something you could sell? Yeah, I could definitely sell this. So there it, it was. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, selling stuff at his store i'm then in uh i'm in some some galleries as well 22 gallery on uh 22nd and uh locust in philadelphia in a gallery warning company up in chestnut hill so that's some different things working and this is all new to me and i'd say you know one of the interesting thing is trying to transition what i've learned from my business side of things into this art world and it is extremely difficult so what do you what do you think the biggest challenge is that you're facing right now with it? Well, I, I'd say first of all is getting getting out there and accepted. And you know, it's I think it might be easier to do when you are a trained art person. You've gone to school for for art and art, you got your bachelor, you now have an a master's in art. You kind of have this lineage, you have some this network of people, you have an understanding of stuff. I'm coming at it very sideways and I'm trying to apply a little bit more of the the business sense to it. But there is definitely a relationship aspect of it. There is a who are you aspect of it. And now some people will will gladly spend five hundred dollars on a bowl and not care who you are. But there's others who really want to know what are you about? Who are you? But there's a there's an emotional attachment to that purchase through the artist and and it's trying to understand just like when i'm dealing with with um whether it's a, a CEO or an engineer or a purchasing person, it's understanding what is it that this person is really interested in. Are they trying to buy a piece of the artist or are they trying to just buy something to put on their table? Are they buying a gift for someone and they, you know, there's no real attachment. They just think it looks pretty. So it's trying to understand that. And then, of course, put yourself in the best position to do that because what I'm finding is you get a lot of long conversations about really random things people are saying oh yeah my my nephew he likes wood he once bought this wood piece he was at this show you ever been to this show oh yeah but you know this kind of wood like then they'll go on for 25 minutes about it and ne never had any intention to purchase and it's like okay so how do i avoid those not that i don't want to talk to people but let's keep it let's keep it focused so trying to keep those things moving in the right direction has certainly been a challenge and um 
I'm finding just like with a lot of things in marketing, you throw a lot of stuff up on the wall and you see what sticks. Well, and I, I love it too, because it really comes back to the same same core, which is asking the right questions at the right time in a right way and listening to what the answers are, because then that'll help you to understand. Because I, I think that's a great acknowledgement that um, your customers, whether they're buying your artwork or they're buying your uh, parts for uh, their blinds, is that they're going to have different needs and we can make assumptions all we want about what their needs are. But until we ask them and have them tell us, we just run around in the dark. That is the truth. That is the truth. And I think a lot of times we talking about myself from the art perspective is one of those times where you realize I'm one who I like to listen more than I talk, even though I probably don't listen as well as I should, as a lot of us do. Um, but I, I, I think, I think that that, that listening is so important, but you inherently, and when someone asks you, who are you? What are you doing? It's so easy to just go on and on. But meanwhile, you got to keep it short and sweet so that you can ask some questions back to find out why are they even asking me this? Why do they care about me? That's the whole concept is to be able to slow ourselves down, to ask the right questions and really listen to the answers. And I always say, you know, when, when you are actively listening, you have to listen with your ears and your eyes. Because if you're watching people, you'll see whether or not they're engaged. Are they bored by your answer? Do they really seem to want to share? Did they just use it as a reason to come over to your booth? You know, if you're if you're doing an art festival um, type thing, but really being able to listen and try to make the connection quickly, but to make it personal. So it's personal to that individual. You know, whether it's the business or or somebody buying you know one of your beautiful pieces of art. And it's, it's interesting when you say that because it's it's about the interaction, but it's also a, about communicating something that they find relevant and ties them them in. But it's sometimes, and, and I find that it is, the challenge is understanding this is a totally different mindset of someone who is purchasing art versus someone who is purchasing products. It's a, it's a whole different world. So trying to understand how that, that mindset comes together um, is, is certainly challenging for me. I think that it's it's one that I'll uh, enjoy continuing to have that discussion with you because I think there's a lot of uh, pieces there that, you know, as you start to unwrap them that you're going to find really merge between the two. But one of the things that you said that was, for me really resonated is when you said that if you haven't grown up in that artistic culture, in some sense, you don't have the right dialogue or you don't know the right people or you don't have, you know, know the right places, but that doesn't mean that's always what people are looking for to make the connection back with you. It's it's whether or not we can stop long enough to listen, ask ask clearly, and get people to tell us themselves why they are there, what they're looking for, and what it means to them. Yeah, I'd say one of the things I've learned throughout life is you know you got to shut up sometimes. You know, it's really important to stop and to listen. The importance of information is is critical. And, you know, when it comes to making any decision, you can only make it based on the information that you have. And if you haven't stopped to gather the information that was right in front of you, like you're saying to read the person's face, to understand how they feel beyond their words, you're leaving so much on the table. You're not going to be able to make the best decision if you haven't, haven't absorbed all the information that was right there, let alone the information that wasn't right there that you had to go hunt down. But the importance of that information to make decisions. Um, and, you know, tie it back with this, like, 
I need to gather some more information to understand how it is that I am supposed to push these things to someone which is different than how I would push many other things that I've sold in life to people. But I would imagine there's probably a lot more similarities than differences, but those subtle differences are what I need to, what I need to, to pay more attention to. I love it. Well, we just have a couple more minutes. Are there any um, last thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience? No, I think uh, I think we've covered a lot of good ground here. Um, I, I I feel like uh, you've asked some some uh, some good questions and and kept me rolling in in good directions here. And uh, you know, while I was I was talking a lot, I, I I did I did do a little listening here. It was a very nice conversation. <laughs> good to to see uh, how you were uh, approaching these things and how uh, how you're 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 getting people like myself out there into into the world and getting people to listen to to their experiences and how they can then apply them to their own situations. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this podcast. It's been very fun because I've had so many different businesses, so many different organizations, so many unique individuals, and yet there's common themes without it. And that's what I find just most compelling. So I know that people can, they can learn more about LIS Enterprises at lisenterprises.com, just how it sounds. Um, And I will also have that on the show notes, but I can't remember off the top of my head about website information for your woodworking. Jasonbrenner.com. Jasonbrenner.com, J-A-S-O-N, Brenner, B-R-E-N-N-E-R.com. And again, for my listeners, I will have that all in the podcast notes for you. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story with my audience. And I look forward to uh, seeing you continue in your success. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity and can't wait to, to hear about your, your 10 million listeners and, and uh, <laughs> how this thing grows for you. It's, uh, it's really awesome what you're doing and uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you as well. 